All right. Let's uh, now, in this reality, let's think about this ending of the book of Hebrews. And one of the things, the thing I've been saying all the way through, uh, and what this book is about, in essence, is that as we go through life, we discover that it's really, really hard. (laughs) It's hard to keep on following Jesus. It can seem easy at the start, and it's all exciting, and it's new, and it's wonderful, but the experience of the original recipients of this book was that persecution and doubt and temptation and division came upon them, and it was hard, and the letter is written to help them hold on to Jesus and to make it to the end. Uh, The assumption of the book is that it is not a given that those of us who start the race of faith will finish the race of faith. And the book is one of the means God gives us to keep on running, to keep on going until the end. And so the whole book really is, is showing us how we can do that, why we can do that, what the plan is. And right here at the end, we discover that there is one other gift that God gives his church one other means of grace that he makes available to us to help us get to the end. What do you think that is? As you listen to this chapter. That's spirit, that's a good one. It's not the right one or the one I was thinking of, but that's a good one. That's pretty good, thanks. gives us the gift of leadership. Uh, A local church, the church, the body of Christ needs leadership if we are to make it to the end. Uh, So what I want to do in uh, the time available is think about a few things. I want to go, I want to ask us, why do we need leadership? It's a good question. Maybe we don't want leadership. Why do we need it? Um, Who provides it? And, uh, and then I want us to think about the power to do this, the power to lead. Where does it come from? So why do we need leadership? Who's going to provide it and where do we get the power for this kind of transforming leadership? Why, why do we need leadership? Well, right at the end here, you see, um, this wonderful metaphor is introduced uh, to God's people about Jesus, and this is what it says. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Ah, there's a hint. First time in the book, Jesus called the shepherd. What are we called? Ah, so why do we need leadership? Because we're sheep. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but... Uh, the Bible at this point is quite deliberately insulting us. Isn't it? Think about, I mean, we're all urban people, so we probably don't realize the extent of the insult. Um, we all, when we think of sheep, we think, oh, beautiful, cute, fluffy, gorgeous. Oh, oh, yeah, that's, we're just like a, you know, like a, a beautiful, I mean, if they had poodles, they could have used poodles. That was, but they didn't say they had to use sheep. That's how we think of it. Not at all. If you know anything about sheep, um, uh, let's let's do a bit of a brainstorm. What are sheep actually like? They are dumb. 
There is not a lot of frontal lobe development happening in your sheep. You know, it's like a small little brain. What, what, what is the dumbness? What, what else about sheep? Headstrong. Stubborn. Yeah, stubborn, maybe. They what? They're white. Actually, they're not. You go to the Israel and they're lots of black, dirty. What's? They follow. Yeah, they follow. Uh, they're easily led, yeah. They're, they're, yeah, down the back. They're vulnerable. Ah, oh, that's exactly, look, here's most, they taste good on a barbecue, yep. They taste good. Yeah, that's helpful. They, they make good. <laughs> yeah, that might not be the first thing that the writer to Hebrews had in mind to evoke with this metaphor, but, you know, let's go with that. They stray. They're helpless. Yeah, vulnerable, helpless. Listen, here's, a, here's something about sheep, right? Um, most other animals, if they get lost, can protect themselves or find their way home. You know what sheep do without a shepherd? They just stand there. And when a prey, a predator comes, they just stand there quivering and they, go, and they become lunch or dinner. Sheep are terribly vulnerable. They're not very smart. If they don't have a shepherd constantly leading them and keeping them in line, they just put their heads down. They've not mastered any form of delayed gratification. So what they do is they put their heads down and they just follow the next clump of grass until it leads them over a cliff or leads them away from the flock or away from the shepherd. And then they are utterly vulnerable and they become some predator's lunch or they die alone. Isn't that an awesome description of us? Why do you think God describes us in that way? What's the purpose of that metaphor? To show us we need him. I think it's given to us. I think God uses this to puncture the illusion of our own competence and our hubris and our self-reliance and our autonomy and show us we all like sheep have gone astray, <laughs> to show us that we are terribly vulnerable in this world. We are utterly helpless to protect ourselves from all that the world throws at us and that Satan throws at us. And we desperately need a shepherd. We desperately need a shepherd. We need leadership to survive. Now, this is a problem for us. I think it's always been a human problem, but it's a particular problem for us in our culture today because isn't it true that all of us have enormous ambivalence towards leadership and authority, right? We all are deeply conflicted when it comes to leadership and authority. We love the idea of authority and leadership for other people. Yes, we need, we need, we need to keep them, their people in line, but we, we really don't like having to submit to others ourselves. We're desperate for authority, but we hate authority. We love it and we hate it. We need it and we're scared of it. And this puts us in a real bind because we all know that, that, without, that, that anarchy is chaos. I mean, can you imagine uh, an operating theater where no one was in charge? Uh, you know, where the surgeon says, I need this, and the nurse goes... No, I don't think so today. 
I, I feel like that's just an oppressive, you know, patriarchal, post-colonial power play. And, and I think I want to use this. You know, it just wouldn't work, would it? We know that. But we also know that leadership and authority and power can be immensely destructive. And many of us have been hurt by authoritarian leaders. And we've got this at, a, at an individual level in our own hearts, but also culturally, we see this, this ambivalence towards authority being worked out all around the world, where nobody wants any central authority to have any power. So it, we have this sort of democracy run wild, where there are more and more elections happening at every layer of government, and, and because nobody wants to actually let the elected governments govern. So you've always got, you know, you've got these complex arrangements where you've got senates overlooking the lower house to, so you can keep checks and balances and controls. No one can ever get anything done. There's a crisis in, in democratic society around the world. The turnover of governments has never been higher. It's not just here in Australia. There's a, a revolving door of political leadership all around the world. Uh, and, and part of this is, you know, we're reaping 200 years of, uh, of philosophical thought that says we are the ones who are in control of our destiny. We, we can't trust anybody else. It's, my, it's like my favorite cry from the, the French Revolution. This is that, you know, we'll only truly be free when the, you know, the, uh, the last king is strangled with the guts of the last bishop. Right? When you throw off all external authority, then you'll truly be free. And anyone who tries to tell you what to do is trying to oppress you. So you have to be free. Now, that doesn't work. And we know that. We get stuck. So what people are concerned about rightly is we, we at one level, we move to this place of radical autonomy and individualism and a rejection of all authority. We discover that doesn't work. We discover that leaves us actually terribly vulnerable terribly vulnerable. In the rejection of all authority, we discover ourselves to be completely alone, and, and that's a terrible place. So then what happens, the swing is back to authoritarianism, and the great risk culturally for us is that there will be a move back to fascism and, uh, and, and the, uh, the fantasy that the strongman, charismatic authoritarian leader is the answer Seeing that in China, you see that in Russia, you see that in parts of Africa, we see that happening in Western Europe. So the swing from radical autonomy that we discover doesn't work to fascist authoritarianism are the two tensions, the two, those are the poles that we swing through when it comes to leadership. And it happens at a, at a global level, politically, culturally, but it, it, look, it happens in our own hearts, Right? happens in our own hearts at a deep level. We have two tendencies with leadership, right? We idolize leaders. They're the authoritarian leaders, the charismatic leaders. We, we realize we're alone. We need someone to rescue us, so we trust this leader and we idolize them. But then when they disappoint us, we crucify them and we end up alone. And then when we're alone, we discover it's terribly scary. So then we look, we eventually enough tension builds up in us and we look for the next charismatic leader to idolize and then we find that leader and then they let us down and we crucify them and we find, we, we find ourselves back here. And we're caught in this pendulum and in this paradox. But there's a better way. A better way the Bible presents of how leadership works in a life-giving way. And this passage is just full of it. Now, let me, let me say right up the front that it does, uh, as, as the leader of this church to speak on leadership feels, 
feels a little weird, you know, and it, so it can be like I'm the one, uh, you know, if, if the leader has to tell everyone that they're the leader, the chances are they're probably not the leader, right? Um, so it's not that, that's, this isn't me, this is, just, this is where the text comes and I think it's incredibly helpful. And at this season of our life as a church, I think it's particularly useful in God's providence and timing to think about this. Look at what it says. Uh, where are we actually going to get this leadership? Who provides it, right? So why do we need it? We're sheep. We swing between these two things. We have this paradoxical, uh, conflicted relationship with leadership. Who's going to provide it? And uh, leadership's going to come um, from three sources, right? It's going to be three ways in which we get leadership. And uh, the first way uh, is, is the assumption in the whole text is we have to lead ourselves. It's a bit of a thing, you'll see this in the leadership, the pop leadership literature at the moment, which is often a load of gumph, but you know, that people will talk about self-leadership. What is, I was, what is self-leadership? Well, the whole of the book of Hebrews is saying, is appealing to us. So even in this text where it says, submit to the leaders that God has put over you, it's still an appeal to you. And to me, as moral, autonomous, choosing agents. So self-leadership is saying that each of us have to choose. Our act of self-leadership is to put us in a place where we can be led for our own good. That's paradoxical, but true, isn't it? Here's the thing about leadership, and I'm sure you know this. If you're a parent, or you're a manager, or you ever try to lead anything, uh, a in the end, leaders cannot control or take responsibility for the people they are leading. We may, when our children are young, get external compliance to our wishes and desires. It's particularly easy before kids can start crawling, right? You just pick them up and put them down and that's it. It's beautiful. It's a little window of parenting, set and forget parenting. You know, pick them up, put them down, that's it. What we discover is that's not how life works. If your kids, as they grow up, don't want to go where you want them to go, they may give you external compliance for a season, but their hearts are going to go in a different direction, and in time, they're going to head off and do their own thing. As parents, as leaders, we are not responsible for the state of the other person's heart or responsible for their decisions. We're responsible to love them, to lead them, to provide the conditions where they can flourish. So, in my role as rector of Darling Street, I am not responsible for your choices. <laughs> I'm not responsible for where your heart goes. You are. You've got to lead yourself. You've got to go, I am responsible for the choices I make, for the words I speak, for the things I do, for my resolute commitment to follow Jesus or not. I'm not responsible for that. No leader can be responsible for that. The leadership in the church is responsible to teach you the scriptures provide the context and the framework where you can lead yourself and, as we'll see, lead others to the kingdom of God. So there's a massively important distinction between responsibility for and responsibility to. And uh, this is an invitation, as we end this book, for you to take up leadership of yourself in the way of Jesus. No one else can do it for you. God can't do it for you. 
You know, like we have to do it. We have to choose. No one else. So self-leadership. The second uh, leadership is going to come peer to peer from within the community of grace. So who is going to help us keep going on this journey towards Jesus? Well, it's going to be each other. It's not all just from the center or from the top down. The vision of the kingdom of God is as we choose to put ourselves in alignment with God, then he calls us to minister to each other. So uh, let me show you what I mean. Here are two passages that we've looked at, Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 10. And some interesting words are used. Uh, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you uh, has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily. Okay? Encourage one another. Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Uh, Let's not give up meeting together as some is in the habit of doing. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. There is a profound element here of mutual peer-to-peer. We're in this battle together. We're running this race together. We're fighting this fight together. So come on. And it's not just, it's not just uh, superficial encouragement. This, there's a profound uh, ministry of the Word, the ministry of the Spirit, ministry of God to each other that has authority, peer-to-peer authority, because... Um, The writer to Hebrews in verse 22 says this, Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. He describes all of Hebrews as a word of exhortation. Now guess what? What do you think that word exhortation could also be translated as? It's actually exactly the same word that is used in the Greek in chapters 3 and chapter 10 to describe this peer-to-peer ministry. So this text of scripture that is God used to encourage us, there's a qualitatively similar ministry that we're to have with each other to encourage each other, to be deeply, deeply connected into each other's lives, to get alongside each other closely enough that we can speak truth, we can rebuke each other can hold each other accountable. And that's hard, hey? I mean, oh boy, we love, uh, in our culture, don't we? We love the carefully curated public personas that we all parade around. Carefully curated Facebook and Instagram and Twitter facades. We put on our best faces. We all are pretty good at that. But actually, the book of Hebrews says, listen, if we're to run the race, if we're actually to get to the end... We've got to get behind that and be woven deeply enough into each other's lives that we can encourage each other right the way to the end with honesty. So uh, there's peer-to-peer. And then the final thing is uh, there is, um, uh, there is top-down, there is leadership from the top. I don't really want to call it top-down, but my mind's gone blank and I can't think of what I called it at 9 o'clock. Um, There is leadership that is provided by leaders. Let's have a look. Verse 17, let's unpack what that looks like. But before we do that, let me show you, uh, give you a little picture to show you how this actually, how I see this working. And I'm not sure if I've done this before here. 
there's two ways it broadly leadership can be conceived. One is you have X and X leads Y. And, uh, and basically, this is how it works. This is a binary form of leadership where X is in charge and X says to you, you do this, you do that, you do the other thing. Uh, and it's a lot about the exercise of power. There's not a lot of engagement. There's a lot, a lot of to and fro. There's not a lot of autonomy and mutual working together. A lot of the way leadership, charismatic leadership is conceptualized is in this way. And this is the sort of leadership that we find scary and problematic. It's the leadership of cults where you can't question. If you're the follower, you can't question, you can't discuss. The boss says it, that's it. No discussion, no debate is entered into. You have very limited scope for exercising autonomy. Uh, and most of the, well, not most, a lot of the leadership literature is really about how to become a more charismatic leader to exercise this kind of control over people. Um, uh, that's not a biblical vision at all. The biblical vision is a, is a vastly different vision, and this is what it looks like. Uh, you've still got leadership and followership. You've got X and you've got Y. But, X, but there's a third point, Z. And so uh, there's still leadership here, but influence flows both ways, and both X and Y are related to each other by virtue of their commitment to Z. Make sense? What might Z be? Jesus? Yeah, Jesus, that's it, it is. I mean, we can run a whole Trinity. I actually have a Trinitarian, could do another half-hour talk on how this actually, the Trinity works for all eternity in this model. So it's in, in organizational terms, it's the task. Given the number of medicos here, if you're in an operating theater, Z is the primary task of getting the patient out alive and well, whatever that might be, whatever surgery you're performing. So the surgeon is still in charge, calling the shots, but the, everybody else is relating to the authority and the leadership of the surgeon um, around their judgment that this person is leading them to a place Z, Right? And it, there's, there's discussion and debate. Actually, a, an even better illustration of this is, the airport, is, a, is an airplane cockpit, right? Uh, where everyone's lives are on the line. The primary task of the, the flight crew is to get the plane down safely and in one piece, right? In any situation. Get it up when it's meant to go up, get it down when it's, when it's meant to go down. Everything else about flying is just an add-on benefit if you happen to get nice food and you sleep, whatever. Just, did you crash and die? No, that was a good flight. So, uh, when the pilot is in charge... If the pilot makes a decision that looks like it's going to catastrophically uh, uh, you know, result in you not achieving Z, what can the flight crew who are below the pilot in authority and pay and status and power say? Don't do that. They can override the decision of the captain and speak up because everybody knows what matters most is getting to Z, is, is landing safely, right? So in the church... I think this paradigm still works, right? What's Z for the church? What's Z for, uh, for the book of Hebrews? Well, it's this, right? It is Jesus, of course. Um, but it's more than... It's, it's, the book of Hebrews puts it this way. It's the city that is to come. That's our destination. That's our journey. This city that we live in, this is not it. We are on a journey towards the city that is to come. So local church leadership happens 
right now, this is when, when the, the people in the congregation, people in the community, authorize and empower leadership to happen because we judge that as we work together with leadership and followership, exercise well and intelligently, we're going to get to the city of God. That's what's happening now, right? You've all, you've, you've given up a whole bunch of power and autonomy this morning. You could be doing something else. You're sitting here. You're, you're letting Keelan and the band lead you. You're letting Kath lead you. You're letting me lead you. Why? Because deep in the core of your being, you believe that as you submit to the worship leadership, to Kath's leadership, to my leadership in teaching, as we all submit to this, we're going to increase the likelihood that we get to the the city of God, right? That's why we're here, isn't it? That's how it works. And if you go, oh, Mark, you're not taking us to the city of God. You're taking us to back to Egypt, all sorts of strange false teachings. You're leading us astray. We're going to lose our faith. We're going, you're, Mark, you've, we're now worshiping Allah. We're, you know, you want to start introducing Islamic or whatever it is, or you're bringing false. Then at that point, you go, no, no, you're like a flight crew whose captain is about to crash the plane. No, that's wrong. We can't do that. That's, that's right and appropriate. That's why we're not a cult. In a cult, you can never question the leader. In a healthy system of authority, if, if the leadership of the church is not taking us to the city of God, then, oh, no, Mark, you're crashing us. And then we can discuss and talk and pray. You say, Kath, your prayers are heretical. Your prayers are actually destroying our faith. Then we have that discussion, right? So that's how leadership works. So that, I hope that framework's clear. It works in all, in all organizations. And it, it's not about personality. It's not about preference. It's about task, about authority, about followership, leadership, and the destination where under God we're all going. So then we come to what is an amazing verse, uh, which we could spend the next month unpacking. Uh, and that's verse 17 which is immensely problematic in the Western church to really think about because we don't like leadership. We're all scared of it. We, we have these deeply ambivalent relationships. But listen, in very strong language, this outlines uh, how to be part of a church where you are most likely to get to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, this is the benefit, right? Do you want to be part? Do I want to be part of a church where there's going to be great personal benefit for you? Well, here's how you do it. One, Um, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, which we've already done this morning. We've, you know, Keelan led us in music and Kath led us in prayers in the service. So you're never going to get to the kingdom of God unless you submit to the authority of your leaders. It's pretty simple. You've got to trust them. Uh, And in verse 7, it says, in fact... Uh, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. That's talking actually about a previous, we think in this context, a previous generation of leaders who've lived the life, gone all the way to the end, held their faith and have died and gone on to be with God. So, So those past generations of leaders, consider them. And that's a bit like us, look at, look at the leaders of the church who've gone before us. For me, I look, at, I look back to someone like John Stott in our evangelical Anglican tradition. I look at a leader like John Stott and I go, there's a man 
who led, I just, I want to imitate him. Whole life as an English clergyman, faithfully followed Jesus, eschewed all kinds of temptations, lived a faithful, incredibly effective life and died well, uh, you know, surrounded by family and friends um, praising Jesus. That's, I want to, I, I look at Stott and I go, that's what I want to be like, right? But it was the Friday, one of the most moving moments for me was when Ed and Barry were, preach, were, were leading us in prayers. And I'm standing there, and there's Barry, and there's Ed, and consider the outcome of their lives. Now they're still young, but like, you know, give them a few more years, and we'll watch how they die, right? And then follow them through that process. Like, that's what the text is saying. Watch. That's why it's so devastating when Christian leaders make a shipwreck of their faith. I mean, I feel this acutely. Like, if, if you're in the congregation and no one really knows you're, you, you don't have a huge amount of influence um, beyond the local fellowship, if you mess up morally or spiritually, it has an impact. But when a Christian leader makes a shipwreck of their faith, the ripples are huge. So uh, consider your leaders. You know, watch. Uh, you know, really what it'll be is your kids watching to see how I die. That's the ultimate test, right? That's when we know, okay, follow them. But in the interim, uh, listen, uh, submit, to your, submit to their authority. You say, why? Because it's a great big power play? No, no, not because they love it. Well, let me tell you, uh, many of you I look out have led small groups. You've led Christian people. Is it just always fun to lead Christians? Do you do it because of the money and the status? Not really. You do it because they do what? They keep watch over you. And this, this little word watch is used, it's a very evocative word in the Old Testament, right? It's used of the shepherd. A shepherd has this incredible charge to keep watch over these stupid, dumb, vulnerable sheep. So when you go out with a hundred sheep, you come back with a hundred sheep. And if you lose one, you leave everything behind and you go out after the one. So you keep watch. Now, obviously, in a church this size and as we're growing, I, I as the, you, you can't say all this keeping watch has to be me as rector. That's an impossibility. I mean, I feel the burden. Let me tell you, I feel the burden. But as we delegate leadership and leadership is exercised through our small group leaders in particular, so they're there to keep watch over your souls. The other metaphor is that the watch is the watchman on the walls. You're in a city, and they have this incredibly important role to, to, keep, to, to keep a lookout for the enemy coming. Typically, when an army is in war, what happens to the watchmen who fall asleep at their post? They're shot. It's such a vitally important job that you lose your own life if you fall asleep when you're giving, keeping watch over the, uh, overnight because the whole survival of your company depends on you keeping watch. So local church leadership is an incredible burden. It is an incredible burden. Let me tell you, let me speak enormously frankly to you. I don't really care at all about bil- at one level about buildings and music style and personal preferences about X, Y, or Z. Like none of that ultimately matters. What matters, sisters and brothers, is that together we get to the kingdom of God. 
that together we run the race. And as we run the race, as we keep watch over each other's souls, we make it because life is hard and we're going to be picked off one at a time. We're, we're in grave danger of making, making shipwreck of our souls, our selfish, autonomous, freely choosing Western consumer selves take God lightly. And we're vulnerable. And so you know what? All this stuff, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, and it's glorious, and and it is important in its place. But in the end, the job of leadership is not all of this stuff. It's this stuff. It's your soul, my soul. Are we going to make it? And are we going to get more and more people along on the race? That's it. Because on the last day... Anyone who's in leadership in this church, so Keelan leading us in music, Kat uh, leading us today, even for what we've done this morning, we're going to have to give an account. I mean, it's the sobering thing. One day, I'm going to have to stand up in front of Jesus, and Jesus is going to say to me, hey, buddy, you know all those wonderful people for whom I died at Darling Street? How, How did you go at keeping a watch over their souls? That's why the Bible says, don't many of you presume to be teachers, because you'll be held to a higher standard. I mean, I feel that acutely. And I hope you do in the areas where you have leadership and influence over other Christian people. You need to know that you will have to give an account to Jesus for everything you've said, everything you've thought, everything you've done, and have you exercised your influence in a way that has helped them get to the city of God. So, given that, here's here's some really, really smart advice. And Kath referenced this earlier in her prayers. So, uh, do this so that their work, note it's a plurality of leadership, so that the leaders, so here, dear friends at Darling Street, do this so that the leadership of Darling Street, the work that I do, that our staff do, that our small group leaders do, that our work will be what? A joy. Not a burden. Because if it's a burden to the, if you behave in a way that makes leadership a crushing burden, there will be no benefit to you. You are cutting off the branch that you sit on. And you're going to make it that much harder for you to get to the kingdom of God. (laughs) Now, make it a joy. Here's the litmus test for all our interactions with everyone in authority over us. Is what I am doing now, the attitude that I have, the words that I speak, the way I lean into this community, the way I engage, is this making the exercise of such spiritual leadership a greater joy for those in authority over me? And if it's not... You're doing yourself damage. You know? It's like that old saying, you know, bitterness is like drinking poison than expecting the other person to die. It doesn't work. Like, it's confusing, right? Let's go, as we grow, as God works in our church, 
Let's find ways as we are of, of seeing leadership and followership and authority under God released so that we can all flourish and make it to the end. Now, this is not easy, right? It's not, not easy for me to say this. It feels culturally difficult and hard, but it's so obviously true. 20 years of doing this in the local church, let me tell you, our church is, we are not going to flourish unless leadership in this church is a joy. One of the things, this is an aside, one of the things I've noticed here is uh, uh, people don't like leading in this church. A lot of volunteers, lots of people love helping out, which is awesome. But I think there's this Anglican-Australian thing where it's kind of people don't like sticking their hands up and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to lead. I'm going to step up and lead. And I think there's something culturally in our uh, educated, upper-middle-class Anglicanism that, that actually, you know what? We don't make leadership a joy in the Anglican church. <laughs> it's a burden. It's like herding cats. It's hard. It's not, it's not our... It's, it's, when I look all the way around this diocese and in other places, I see this. And I think that's one of the reasons we're not as spiritually alive as we could be. Just a thought. It's not a recipe for authoritarianism or cult-like control. It's just the Bible's recipe for how we're to flourish. Where does the power to do this come from? Because let me tell you, it's hard. Oh my goodness, it is hard. Uh, it is very hard. Well, the power comes from Jesus, doesn't it? The power ultimately for all of us, the power to submit, the power to lead, the power to follow, the power to hang in there with Jesus, the power to build a healthy local church comes from Jesus. These amazing verses, now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. This is the power. It comes from God that he may work in us what is pleasing to him. This is not something that can be achieved by human effort or striving. This, and this is what excites me and also terrifies me, this is a profound spiritual reality that is impossible unless God is at work in us through Jesus to take a group like us and bring us together to form a community where we love each other deeply enough to work together so that all of us make it to the city that is to come. That needs Jesus in every bit of our life together. And note, uh, this word equip, uh, we, we often think of as like this is sort of empowering, this is giving us the tools we need to do the work. It's also the Greek word that is used when the disciples were repairing the nets that had been broken while they were fishing. So the power comes as Jesus equips us and as he repairs us. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Because I look at... I've, uh, I, have, I have failed to be the leader that God wants me to be. I have failed to be the follower of others that God wants me to be. I am a sheep. I am selfish. I wander. I get lost. I respond defensively. I don't keep my eye on the main game. 
I let myself down. I let my wife down. I let my kids down. I let you down. I let Jesus down. Don't you also screw up like that? The good news is we have someone who's here to heal us, repair us. This is what Jesus does. So in the end, it's not about you or about me. It's about the divine healer making us whole again so that we can make it to the end, so that we can do what is pleasing to him. So this morning, if you need to repent, repent. Hardness of heart, selfishness, failure to step up and lead, ambivalent relationship with authority, gossip, meanness. I don't know. Pick your sin. (laughs) There's a lot of them, right, in all of us. And then come to Jesus and say, Jesus, repair me, equip me, heal me, because I want to make it to the end with my brothers and sisters in this church. Let's pray. Lord God, have mercy on us. Uh, Thank you that the power for this life comes from you. Thank you for this vision of leadership in the church. I pray for our community here that the months and years ahead will build on all the great leadership and ministry that has been uh, exercised here for 170 years. I pray that the season ahead of us as a church will be, be a season of just increasing maturity and depth of discipleship, of passionate love for Jesus, of an experience of the power of the Holy Spirit to heal us and repair us and bind us together. I pray for the next season of our life as a church that we are going to see hundreds come to know you, Jesus, in the years ahead. This church will be full to overflowing multiple times on the weekend. Our homes will be full of people being discipled. Our our Sunday school will be overflowing with young kids coming to know you, Jesus. Our youth ministry will be absolutely bursting at the seams with teenagers coming to new life. And I pray that in the decades to come, when we look back on this season of life, we will go, yes, that was God. That was, that was God alone because by ourselves, we could never have achieved that. Oh, Lord, give us the faith to believe this and the energy and the courage to step into it with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.